Okay, let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where tonight we'll study the first two verses, the introduction to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. If we were to speculate as to where we might find the most intense, the most intense theology in all the scripture, we might think of the book of Leviticus or perhaps Isaiah if we were looking at the Old Testament. If we were to consider the New Testament, certainly the letters of Paul to the Romans and the Ephesians would come to mind, and they'd at least be near the top of the list. Now that's not to say that these works are necessarily more important than any of the other writings of scripture. Certainly, as Paul said himself, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. All scripture is. But in terms of deep theology, Ephesians is up there near the top somewhere. Paul wrote Ephesians from prison in Rome sometime between the years 60 and 62 A.D. You'll recall that Paul had two Roman imprisonments, not just one. He had two Roman imprisonments. This is the first of his two imprisonments. In this imprisonment, this is where we left him at the end of the book of Acts, our study at the end of the book of Acts. He's under house arrest. He has a Roman guard with him all the time, but he's free to entertain visitors. Now, he's not necessarily free. It doesn't look like he was necessarily free to go wherever he wanted to go, but he's free to entertain visitors. And so this is the period where Paul is when he writes, uh, this is the location he is, and the period when he writes the book of Ephesians. Previous to this time, Paul had written, he'd been on three missionary journeys, he wrote the book of Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians, after his first missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, he writes, during the second missionary journey, he writes two letters to the Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. Then during his third missionary journey, he writes First and Second Corinthians and then the book of Romans. The reason I bring this up at all is I want you to see that Paul has written Romans. He wrote Romans maybe as much as five years before he will write his letter to the Ephesians. So these are written previously. At the same time that he's going to write the letter to the Ephesians, or at least during this same period, he will write also the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So along with Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon are considered to be the prison epistles. Now, there's no mystery to that. That's the reason they're titled that is because they were written from prison in Rome. Now, Paul will write one more epistle from prison in Rome, but not just not during this imprisonment. It'll be afterwards. And so after this imprisonment, we know that Paul was released. He probably lived at least another six or seven years, perhaps, after he writes the letter to the Ephesians. And after that period, after he's released from this imprisonment, he writes 1 Timothy, then he writes Titus, and then finally, his, his final testament will be 2 Timothy. Now, when he writes 2 Timothy, he's in Rome again in prison, but this is a totally different situation the second time around. He's in, at least we believe that he was in the Mamertine dungeon. He's in chains then. And he is not in a good situation at all. If he's able to receive visitors, it's, it's minimally compared to the time before. But yet he can write, at the end of his life, I finished the fight. I finished this course. And he, and he seems perfectly content with how he lived his life. And this is an important thing. I, I hope that all of us, if, if it turned out that later on this evening you got news that this was probably the last year of your life or the last month of your life, I hope you would have a certain level of comfort about that. Paul certainly does as he writes, First uh, Timothy, Titus, and then finally, Second Timothy. Now, Paul is going to write to the city at Ephesus. Ephesus was perhaps the third most important city 
in the ancient world at the time that Paul writes this letter. Behind only Rome and Athens, Ephesus was a large city by ancient standards, perhaps as many as 250,000 people. It was an important city, too, not just with regard to our study here with the, the book or the letter to the Ephesians, but it's a, large, it's, a, it's a very large city. It had important architecture within that city. It was a center of religious worship, not of Christianity, but the worship of Artemis and other faiths as well, or pagan faiths. And um, it was a trade city as well. In Ephesus, there was a huge theater. This comes into play in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Remember, there was this Ephesian riot. They dragged two of Paul's friends into this theater that you see behind me right now. Now, Paul himself wasn't taken there. Paul wanted to go there to meet this angry mob, but this theater sat 24,000 people. To put that in perspective, the summit, when it was used for basketball, sat 16,100 people. I don't know how, how many it sits now that it's configured for a church, but this was huge, and it's an, it's an amphitheater shape. It's not even a full round, like a, like a football stadium. 24,000 people in this theater, and this is the very theater where Paul's friends were dragged. The Temple of Artemis was also an incredible architectural feat. It's an, a place that Paul would have, uh, um, that, that was in use at the time that Paul was there. And this made Ephesus a major center of Artemis worship. This place was incredibly large, as you might conceive. So Paul writes Ephesians approximately six to seven years before he dies, and he's probably in his early 60s at the time that he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians is structured like many of Paul's letters. There's an application, there's a doctrinal section, which is in, in this case uh, chapters 1 through 3, and then there's an applicational section in chapters 4 through 6. The first three chapters, again, are heavily doctrinal, and the second three chapters are heavily applicational. In the first three chapters, with regard to the theology of it, there are two primary, primary ideas. Now, there are many ideas, but two that I don't want you to forget. Those are the ideas of love and unity. Love and unity. Love is an incredibly important concept, an incredibly important theological concept in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And, of course, he is going to call them to unity. In the second portion of this letter... Paul will stress the idea of walking. Now, walking, the term peripateo, it can mean moving from one place geographically to another place geographically. But that's not how Paul is going to be using this term. He's not talking about mogating from one place to another. He's talking about a spiritual life moving forward in your relationship with Christ. That's what we call his, our, our walk when it comes to this kind of... Uh, that's the terminology that Paul used. Walking, he uses it quite a bit, either the... The walking walk or to walk in the second half of the epistle. Now, I don't want you to think that there is, there's no application in the first half of the epistle, and I don't want you to think that there's no doctrine in the second half of the epistle. But generally speaking, what Paul's going to do is make a case. He's going to make an incredible, heavily, heavy theological case, and then he's going to call us to a certain behavior based upon the theology that we know. It's amazing to me how many people in Christianity deeply desire very deeply desire to serve God, but they do so apart from knowledge. And then there's a lot of people that have a lot of knowledge, and it doesn't seem to motivate them to want to serve God. Neither one of those is the ideal. We should know about God, and as a result of that knowledge, then we should have a deep desire to serve Him. 
The scriptures tell us that we're to grow in grace, that we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, this is part of our walk. It's very, very important. I think everybody here, I, I know I do, and I think you do too, we desire to grow to a place where we have a deeper, more intense relationship with our Savior. Now, we could also say that we, we would like to grow to a position where, where our faith is more spiritually mature. It's saying the same thing. If we're more spiritually mature, then we're going to have a deeper, more personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The, the Scriptures, the scripture, the apostles, any writer of Scripture, certainly Paul knew nothing, absolutely nothing, about, of, a, of a world in which one would know theology and do nothing with it. That, that wasn't even on his radar. People who would know what to do, but that wouldn't do it. But I'll tell you what else was not on his radar. What else not on his radar is people who tried to do the right thing without knowing what the right thing was. Tried to have a deeper relationship with God and with Jesus Christ without knowing anything about God or Jesus Christ. In today's Christian culture, in all over the world, not just in the United States, but all over the world, we have this problem. People, are, people really want to have a deeper relationship with their Savior but they're attempting to do it apart from knowledge. And I see why that can happen. Because they see people who study the Word of God on a regular basis, and we don't act like we really have learned anything. So it's setting a very bad example. But the idea is to know it and to do it. Where have you heard that before? James, we studied it for months upon months upon months. It's not, it, to, to hear the Word doesn't just mean to listen to it, but it means to, to, to have cognition and then application together. So Paul is calling us not only to know the word, but to do the word. He deeply desires, very deeply desires for the Ephesian church, and here's the key, both Jew and Gentile, the Ephesian church, both Jew and Gentile, to live in unity with one another in, a, in, in one corporate body. There are some racial problems in Ephesus. Now, if we think of racial problems today, we may think of, black and white, or brown and white, or, or any, any number of combinations of all these things. That wasn't the racial problem in Ephesus. That wasn't the racial problem hardly anywhere Paul went in the ancient world. The racial problem wasn't between skin color so much. It was between Jew and Gentile. And what Paul is doing in this letter to the Ephesians is he's demonstrating that the Gentiles had been brought into the plan of God, into the body of Christ, as equal members. There are no associate members in the body of Christ. Everyone is an equal member. So Paul is calling for unity in the body of Christ. But he knows that forced unity is not really unity at all. It may be something, but it's not really unity at all. If I was to say, you guys need to get along, that's forced unity. And it may be something, but it's not really what Paul desires. He knows that there's got to be more than that. So he knows that genuine unity starts with love. Genuine unity starts with love. And so that's why he's going to, he's, he's going to be telling us to have unity in this body of Christ. If the body of Christ is going anywhere, we've got to be unified. But it doesn't start there. You don't start with unity. In Paul's view, you start with love. Now what Christ says in John chapter 17, when he speaks of unity, you've got to start with truth. Remember, remember, Christ is praying for unity in the body of Christ. He's praying that they may be one as we are one, and there would be a fellowship between believers that's so unhindered by sin. 
that, that it could, that, that what would happen after that would shock the world in a good way. And he says, so Christ is saying we should be unified in the sphere of the truth. Paul's saying we should be unified in the sphere of love. Both are, both are equally as important, by the way. One is just as much the Word of God is, as the other. Some people today say that we should have unity at the expense of the truth. You know what I'm talking about. Some people say, well, everybody ought to just get along. And we want to do that. And, and there are some things that, that are not doctrinal statement is, issues. Where somebody wants to, to have contemporary worship, we may want to have traditional worship. But that doesn't mean that we're going to split the sheets with them over that issue, as long as it's God-honoring worship. Some people may want to do thematic preaching. Other people want to do expositional preaching, if they do preaching at all. That, there's no reason to split the sheets over that. But we need to be unified in a very special way, both in, in truth, around the truth, and in love. Paul will, Jesus stressed truth. Paul will stress love. Paul is going to have a great deal to say about both the idea of love and unity. Love has got to come before unity. Genuine unity starts with love. He'll have a great thing to say, a great deal to say about these, both these subjects in his letter to the Ephesians, especially in the first three chapters. It'll overflow into the second three as well, but especially in the first three chapters. As we closed out our time together last week, we learned that the church is part of God's eternal plan. It's God's eternal plan, not ours. The church is part of God's eternal plan, and it grows as a result of God's power, not our power. A result of God's power working through believers' lives, overcoming their spiritual enemies. It's God's church. It's got to be, the plan's got to work through God's power. Now, there are a lot of smart people in the church. A lot of smart people in the church. There are a lot of powerful people in the church. A lot of wealthy people in churches. But that, if you try to substitute man's power for God's power, it's never going to work. So we learned at the end of last week's study, in terms of kind of a survey kind of idea with regard to this letter, that the church is part of God's eternal plan. His eternal plan. That humbles us a little bit. It's really not right to say this is my church or their church or his church or John's church or Chuck's church or Bob's church or Bruce's church or whoever's church. It's God's church. And God's work has got to be done God's way. Like Hudson Taylor used to say, the Lord's work done the Lord's way will never lack the Lord's supply. But he had it right, didn't he? The Lord's work done in the Lord's way. A lot of people don't want to do the first two, but they still want the Lord's supply. And that's not, the way it, that's not the way it works. The church is part of God's eternal plan. And it grows as a result of God's power. Working through believers' lives. We're a part of this. Now, we can't just sit on a park bench and say, well, God's going to do that. I don't need to talk to my neighbor. If God wanted them to hear the gospel, he'd bring somebody to do it. Well, you know, it's not you that he's bringing, that he's motivating to do that. So God's using us in the process. This is very similar to what we learned in the book of Acts. Now, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians reads this way. And tonight we'll just study the first two verses. Um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is, is, is a massive undertaking, and we, wouldn't, we would not do it justice at all to, to just start that tonight. So we're going to do the first two verses, and we'll end there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul immediately begins by identifying himself as an apostle, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. The term apostle 
carries with it, the way it's used in the New Testament, both one could be an apostle in the technical sense, and one could also be an apostle in a general sense. Generally speaking, an apostle is just one who is sent. It means a, a sent out one. And there are quite a few people that are called apostles in that very general sense in the New Testament. Barnabas is one. The Epaphroditus, James. Remember James, the half-brother of Jesus? He wasn't one of the twelve, but he's still called an apostle. Apollos was also called an apostle, although he's not one of the twelve either. These are apostles in a very general sense. In other words, they don't have the title or the office, but that's what they do. They've gone out. And so that generally speaking... Uh, Epaphroditus, Barnabas, James, Paulus are examples of people who are uh, one who is sent out. But there's a more technical, more specific use of the word apostle, and that's where we get the apostleship of Paul, the apostleship of Peter or of John or of Matthew. Paul and the Twelve were apostles of this kind, very specific technical use of the term apostle. They were representatives, specific representatives of Jesus Christ, delegated representatives of Jesus Christ, and as such, they had special authority, not just over one congregation, but over many. To be an apostle in this sense, we're talking about this technical use of the word, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, one must have been personally with Jesus, during his earthly ministry, and then one must also have been a witness to the resurrected Christ. Two things. You had to be with Jesus, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. You had to be with Jesus during his earthly ministry, and you had to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. Now, we've talked about the twelve, minus Judas plus Matthias. But what about Paul? Paul doesn't seem to... Uh, I mean, he may have seen Jesus, but he certainly wasn't with him <laughs> That's really debatable. That's one of the first questions I have when I get to heaven is, Paul, where were you? Where were you? Were you in Jerusalem that day? I mean, there's great debate over that. I don't see how a righteous Jew like Paul could not have been in Jerusalem for the Passover, but who knows? I know there's a lot written. I have no explanation for, for why he never mentioned it, but, but Paul wasn't there with him. Paul's the only exception to that rule. He's the only exception to the rule. He's the only exception to the rule. He saw the resurrected Christ, but he wasn't with Jesus during his time on earth. But he, as far as I know, is the only exception to the rule. Why do I say that? I say it for this reason. Listen carefully. There are no apostles today. Let me say it again, just in case you weren't weren't, uh, paying close attention. There are no apostles today. Some might claim to be an apostle. A lot of people do claim to be an apostle, more overseas than in the United States. But the office of apostleship, the office of apostleship, that technical use of the term, it died with the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. So there's no biblical authorization for someone calling themselves an apostle today, not in the sense that the Twelve and Paul were apostles. Now, if they want to say they're just one sent out, that's fine, but that's not what they do. There's no biblical justification for the office of apostle today. In fact, really, there's no biblical justification for the office of pope either. But people still certainly recognize that one. So um, we, we need to be very careful. Paul did not choose to become an apostle. That's God's decision. Today, that's not the way it is sometimes. <laughs> Paul had God's authority behind him because it was... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, you see the next phrase, by the will of God, not by Paul's choosing. 
Paul didn't fill out some sort of questionnaire that says, well, you know what, Paul, I think you might be most gifted as either an evangelist or an apostle. You know, and Paul sits down and says, well, you know what, I think I'll pick an apostle. That's not how it worked. God chose Paul to be an apostle. And because God chose Paul, that meant that God had, had put his authority, his stamp of approval on Paul. He had God's authority behind him. In some cultures, in some cultures, titles are very important. Um, I, I've been in cultures where, I've been in cultures recently, I'm, I'm talking about outside, and I think in our culture titles are somewhat important as well, at least in, to some people. But in other cultures, they're extremely important. And you see people competing over cultures. Uh, they would say, well, I'm a bishop. And then somebody else comes up and says, well, I'm a bishop of bishops. And then the new one now says, I'm an apostle. I'm over the bishops. And then somebody will trump that and say, well, here comes one of the apostles of the apostle. I was in, a, I was in another country several months back, and, and I was fascinated because we, we'd had a wonderful time. These, these men were incredible, incredible men and women, too, that were there, so a few women. And one of the organizers of the conference came up, and they were, they were real, real excited. He said, because of Pastor Bruce, and he gave me this person's name, they're here, they're here. I said, really? Who are, who are they? He said, this guy's an apostle. In fact, I believe he's an apostle of the apostles. And I said, well, I'll get to him in a minute. And he said, well, no, you've, you've got to come here right now because this is an apostle of the apostles. And he was here with his entourage, and he came in, and he was looking real important. And he, you could tell he was standing there waiting for me to drop everything I was doing and go over and bow down before this fellow. I said, well, I'll get with him in a few minutes. I'm talking to this fellow here right now. And they were just stunned by that, that this regular, ordinary pastor from out in the brush country, in this one particular country, that I would take time to talk to him instead of the apostle of the apostles that was coming in. Now, the apostle of the apostles got a little irritated that I didn't go right over to him. So I don't remember when I got to him. It was, it was an hour or two, three hours later. And he wasn't real happy that I didn't show him the deference that I should have shown him based upon his office. Who gave him that title? It wasn't God. He gave it to himself. I shouldn't have talked to him at all. Actually, not that I'm any better than him, but what I was doing, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to feed his ego. So listen, we need to be very, very careful about these titles. Some people throw the title of apostle around, and it implies a special authority that people just don't have today. You know, pastors have authority, or leadership is just as good a word, over one local church. Now, some people have asked, and it's a fair question, what about these local churches that are, that are incredibly large to begin with, and then they have, you, you've seen them, they're all over the country now, they'll have one local location, and then they'll have maybe three, four satellite locations where they'll rent movie theaters, and they may have several thousand people at all the different locations. Some people are actually, the, the technology is incredible, where you may not even know if the, speaker, if the pastor or the speaker is speaking at your location or one of the other ones. It's mind-boggling what they can do with technology. What about those people have asked me? Well, this is my opinion about that. Sometimes, let me, let me, no, let me, let me say it this way. If you're pastoring a church that is so large that it's unlikely that you will ever even get to meet, I'm not, I'm not talking about knowing, but at least get to meet everyone in your congregation, probably at least that church is too large. Now, now some might take it further and say if, if you can't minister to everyone in that congregation, it's probably too large. Now, some of the churches that are that large, they make up for it by having staff. I'm talking about not just volunteers, staff, pastoral staff of over 100 people. And that's how they do it. They delegate it out. But that's just my view. This is not meant to be a, I know you're probably thinking of certain churches right now. It's not to be a knock on anything. But to, to answer that question, 
sometimes you, you can, can a church get too large? I think maybe it can. And, and people will, will immediately start to say, well, the only reason you're saying that is because you pastor a smaller church. We're not a small church by necessarily, but we're smaller than them, than that. No, it has nothing to do with that. I, I, I take the gift of pastor, pastoring and teaching very seriously. It's not, it's not just a single gift. It's not just teaching. And it's not just pastoring either. The pastor needs to be do, able to do both, and elders should be apt to teach. I take it seriously. So if you can't do the pastoring part, if you can't actually shepherd anybody, then maybe, I don't know, just maybe, it's too big. But I would leave that one alone and let the people that, that choose to be in that system, let them be in that system. People just ask my opinion. I gave it to you for what it's worth. The letter was written. The letter was written to the saints, to the saints, even the faithful at Ephesus. The, the Greek term hagios, where we get the word saints, means essentially one who has been set apart. One who has been set apart. Now, it's not just to be set apart for the sake of being set apart. The word saint means set apart, at least in, Christ, in the Christian sense, set apart for a particular purpose. God hasn't set us apart just for grins. He set us apart for a particular purpose. Some of that purpose we'll study in verses 3 through 14. Here's, here's a laugh. All believers are saints. All of us have been set apart. Even if, it's, even if some of us don't act so saintly from time to time. And that's, that could be certainly true. But all of us are saints. And the phrase, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, doesn't describe, at least in my opinion, it doesn't describe a second group. But rather it further defines the first group. It further defines who is a saint. Perhaps it should be rendered even to the faithful. Or, or maybe even that is the faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. The phrase, in Christ, is a technical theological designation, which is a favorite of the Apostle Paul. You, you recall that great 8th chapter of Romans. It begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then that chapter ends with two of my favorite verses, for for, and Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That great eighth chapter, Paul frames it with that phrase, in Christ. It's a technical theological term that we'll study quite a bit in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. All of us occupy a position in space or location physically. Right now, all of us are in the United States, at least all of us that are listening to this live. You're in the United States. Not only in the United States, you're in the best state in the United States, that's Texas. And then not only in the best state in the United States, but you're in the best city in the United States, and that's Houston. I won't be so bold to say you're in the best church in the city of Houston, but, but you are in at Pine Valley Bible Church right now. That's your physical Location. You're in the United States. You're in Texas. You're in Houston. You're you're in Pine Valley Bible Church right now. So all of us occupy a particular geographical location physically, but the phrase in Christ refers to our position spiritually, and sometimes this is also known as positional sanctification. A minute ago we used the word hagios, and it was to be set apart. Well, theologians have coined a $100 theological term, and we call that 
positional sanctification. In the, in the same way that we are in a physical location right now, all of us are, and we just happen to be in the same physical location or the same general physical location, Paul is taking that concept. Now he's going to talk about a, a spiritual location. Now you can have people that are in a physical location broadly separated from each other. But there's one thing that draws us all together, and it's not necessarily geography. It's something much more important than that. Anytime an individual places their faith and their faith alone, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, if they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are placed into the body of Christ. And that when they're placed into the body of Christ, they are said to be in Christ. Now, this is a function of the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this, For by means of one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were made to drink of one Spirit. Now, let's listen to this very very carefully now. We're going to do a Bible study methods exercise. We won't do it out loud, but I want you to do it in your souls right now. Listen to this carefully. Again, Paul says, for by means of one spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And it's actually in the letter to the Ephesians that he equates the body with the church with a capital C. So we're, we're baptized into the church, we're baptized into the body of Christ. But now listen to this for a second. We were baptized. Now is that something, this is going to strain some of you because it's going back to high school English class or maybe college English class. And I know you didn't like it then and you probably won't like it now, but we were baptized. Think of this for a minute. That, that's a, a verbal idea. Is that something that has already happened? Is it something that is happening now? Or is it something that will happen in the future? We were baptized. It's already happened. Yeah, it's, it's already a done deal. One other observation we want to make here. Is it some of the Corinthian believers or all of the Corinthian believers? It's all. Every one of them has been baptized. Now, you remember in what little we've studied the first letter of Paul to Corinth, the, the, the Corinthian believers were not exactly poster child material for spirituality in the ancient world. Paul was always having problems with them. Yet he says to the Corinthian church, writing to them, we were all baptized in the past. Now, if that's true, if that can be true for any Corinthian that ever read that letter, or any of us that have read the letter since, when think, think theologically for a moment, when must that baptism occur? If it's true for everybody that we have already in the past been baptized, no matter who reads it, when must that baptism have occurred? That's salvation. That's the only possible time. It's interesting. We're going to talk about unity more in just a few short moments, but I've had a, a great privilege of stepping out of our culture several times and ministering in cultures not just around the world that aren't just different with regard to their politics or their language, but also different in regard to their Christianity. And it's been almost two years now, but I was given an incredible opportunity to go to India and preach a pastor's conference there. I was the primary speaker at this conference, and the topic was, was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. And that was a wonderful opportunity. What made it so wonderful, though, or at least very special, was probably two-thirds of the audience were pastors who were Pentecostal in their theology. This is a very difficult issue for them. I prayed about this for months before I went. Because I wanted to speak, as we'll see Paul say later on, I wanted to speak the truth in love. But I know that they were going to come at they were coming at this from a different theological position, yet we're still one in the body of Christ. Paul's going to say here there's neither neither Jews nor Greeks, slaves or free. There are no racial distinctions, there are no economic distinctions. 
He's going to say in Galatians, there are no gender distinctions. We're all one in this body. So I wanted to tell them the truth, but I knew that it could be a major stumbling block because this is one of those things, this particular passage, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is something that's, that's very near and dear to most Pentecostals' hearts. I also knew that the, the issue of tongues was very near and dear to them as well. So I prayed and I prayed and I prayed before this particular session, actually for months before I even went, knowing that it was going to be a challenge. But I knew if I spoke the truth in love that it was going to be up to the Holy Spirit to take it from there. Interestingly enough, that week both of my, my interpreters were... Uh, were Pentecostal in their theology. One had a church of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. He was an excellent speaker in English and in, in, in uh, their particular language. And another one had a television show where he reached uh, this, probably millions of people. Well, the day came for this particular talk. And what I did was I, I took the, the denominational things out of it and I just preached the passage. I wasn't giving anybody a hard time, and I just broke it down as best as I could in, in that large of an audience with everybody having a different level of expertise there. I broke it down as best as I could and showed them that the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't something that happened subsequent to salvation. It happened at salvation. And I did it lovingly and kindly just from the passage, structurally from the passage. And then I also lovingly and kindly showed them that the, the speaking in tongues uh, isn't now, nor never was it the normal and necessary manifestation of having been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily an experience. Some people can feel an experience when they're saved, but not necessarily. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is not one of those things that, that separates the sort of Christians from the real Christians. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that occurs at the point of salvation that takes us as individuals and places us into a corporate body. It takes us as individuals and places us into a corporate body. You see, we're not alone in the body of Christ. It would be easy, because we generally, not always, but we generally get along with ourselves, don't we? So it's, it's not that hard to get along with yourself. But the, the thing is, there are more than one person in the body of Christ. Other people place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their faith alone in Christ alone, and other people are in Christ. It's not just us. So it, it, the body of Christ, it's not like this. It's not like we have the body of Christ here as a separate entity, and then the body of Christ here, and then the body of Christ here, and the body of Christ here. It's not like there are billions of bodies of Christ. There's one body of Christ with billions of members in that body. Now, you see what Paul's going to deal with? You see, it's, it's not just one or two, but there are people in the body of Christ that don't look like you, that don't talk like me, that, that don't think like me necessarily, and every one of them that has trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life is in Christ. Now, if all these people that are in Christ, all these millions upon billions, are not getting along, then the body of Christ, also known as the church with a capital C, is not going to be performing the function for which it was intended. That's why Paul's going to stress love here. Because there's more than just you and me in this body, and the people that are in it with us are not necessarily people that we would have an inclination to get along with under normal circumstances. Certainly back in Paul's time. In Paul's time, if we were doing it in Paul's time, we could have just put Jew and Gentile in there. And they would have been at loggerheads with each other. The Jews certainly didn't think the Gentiles should be in there. And from all indications, the Gentiles were a little bit put out that the Jews didn't think they should be in there. Well, it's not a lot different today. God's still calling upon us to have unity. We're not alone in the body of Christ. It's one body. Not many, many bodies. For by means of one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
So for that one body to perform the function for which he was intended, which is to fulfill the Great Commission and spread the love of God throughout the world, his message throughout the world, we've got to get along. And in order for us to get along, we've got to, this is going to come as a great shock, we've got to love one another. And to the degree we do that, the church is going to be a healthy living organism, not an organization, a healthy living organism that will fulfill the function for which it was intended. To the degree that we don't do that, we're in huge problems. Now, the idea of positional sanctification, again, we're in, we've been taken from our position of spiritual lostness, and by the Holy Spirit we've been placed into the body of Christ. We're not positionally sanctified. We're in Christ. We have eternal life. We've been declared righteous. All these things, sometimes we try to separate them out. There are different lists. You know, there's 32 things that happen in salvation, 36 things that happen in salvation, 40 things. Some people have got the list up to 100-some things. Really, it's all one package. It's difficult to start slicing those things too thinly. But we've been separated out. We've been set apart, and we call that positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. That means that you are saved, to put it another way. Now, positional sanctification should, should lead to experiential sanctification. It should lead to experiential sanctification. Now, what I mean by experiential sanctification is what I talked about a minute ago, growing in that deeper relationship with Jesus Christ that you want to have to grow into a more mature relationship with God. The fact that we've been saved, it ought to lead to a maturing relationship with the Savior. It ought to do that. But it doesn't always work that way. We should mature with respect to our relationship with Christ. We should grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But some don't. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean they weren't positionally sanctified in the first place. This is what should happen. We should be saved. We should be grateful for that. We should adore and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. That's what should happen. Now listen carefully. This will help us a lot with theological discussions that go around from time to time. A failure to become sanctified experientially, in other words, to mature as a Christian does not necessarily mean that an individual was never positionally sanctified. Okay. We should. Positional sanctification should lead to. Should lead to. Should lead to. Experiential sanctification. But it doesn't always work that way. There are people that fail in this area. Now listen, if it was an automatic that you were to love one another, if, as soon as you became positionally sanctified, if you're really positionally sanctified, if you're really a believer, it was an automatic that you would mature in your faith, that a lot of ink has been spilled in the scriptures telling me to mature in my faith, encouraging me to mature in my faith, commanding me to love one another. If it's an automatic, why do I have to be commanded to do it? I don't have to be commanded to breathe. That's an automatic. I don't have to, my heart doesn't have to be commanded, at least in most cases, apart from pacemakers and things, it doesn't have to be commanded to beat that's an automatic. But I do have to be commanded to grow in grace and in the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who claim that positional sanctification automatically leads to Christian maturity, and there are many that claim that today. Those who claim that, I'm afraid, are being governed as much by a, a prior commitment to a theological system 
than they are being governed by what the Bible actually says. Some people get so wrapped up, and I'll just go ahead and say it, some aspects of Reformed theology, that, that they are, they're so committed to certain aspects of that Reformed theology, particularly Calvin's doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that they are blinded as to what the scriptures actually say. Now, listen carefully. The scriptures allow for the possibility, and I'm not even saying the probability, but the possibility that some genuine believers will fail in their walk with God. The scriptures allow for that possibility. We don't want that. It shouldn't be the norm. The norm should be that if we're positionally sanctified, we would become experientially sanctified. That should be the norm. But the scriptures allow for people who have been genuinely positionally sanctified to fail with regard to their experiential sanctification. Or per, look at it this way. Not everybody achieves the same level of spiritual maturity. Or not everyone achieves the same depth in their relationship with Christ. It doesn't mean they weren't saved in the first place. Now, it bothers me sometimes like it bothers you. I've got friends that I really wish would get with the program, show up to church, support a missionary now, and then, whatever it may be, I, w- I really wish they would. But I can't determine with certainty because they don't go to church, it means they're not a Christian. If they've told me, and, they, and I have friends that are that way, they've given me their testimony that they are, I assume that they are. Now, one last note, a couple last notes here before we finish up. About, with regard to the phrase, at Ephesus, while some very old manuscripts do not include these words, the bulk of the external as well as the internal evidence in the letter points to the phrase either at Ephesus or in Ephesus as being the authentic reading. The reason I bring it up at all is if you're looking at your Bible right now, there's probably some sort of marginal note that says some, of the, some ancient manuscripts do not contain these words, at Ephesus or in Ephesus. Uh, by external evidence, I mean that the early church always held that those words that were there, many, many manuscripts do have those words in there, in, internally, it looks like the letter was written to the Ephesian believers. So I'm not sure how profitable, not to mention we don't have a lot of time left tonight, but I'm not sure how profitable it would be to spend much time, a whole lot of time, with a discussion of textual criticism and how it plays out here, at least not tonight. Those kinds of discussions are necessary, and they are extremely profitable on the academic level. And, and because textual critics have spent countless hours poring over these manuscripts, and hashing all this out, we can simply tonight, in the matter of about 45 seconds to a minute here, accept the fruit of their labors and understand this verse to say exactly what your Bible that you're holding in your hands says that it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 2, Paul gives a, a standard greeting in terms of his form of greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If someone was to greet you in ancient Athens, not so much Athens at the time of Jesus, but in ancient Athens, and they wanted to say hello to you, they would have come and say, Kyrie opilo. Kyrie was their way of saying hello, or greetings, opilo would have been their way of saying my friend. Now this is ancient Greek, not Koine Greek. But Paul kind of adapts that. The word kyrie is, is their word for greetings or hello. Paul uses the word charis. Sounds very similar. But he adapts an ancient greeting to his own uses and uses the terms grace and peace. And he does this in many of his letters. Grace expresses God's steadfast love toward man. And peace shows the relational state that results from that grace. Peace shows the relational state 
that results from that grace. Paul opened his letter to the church at Ephesus with greetings to the believers there, expressing his wish that God's grace and peace would be with them. So the first two verses read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in summary, Paul opens his letter to the Ephesian believers by stressing his position as an apostle and thus his authority to speak for God by laying the groundwork, just laying the groundwork for the discussion to follow of what it means to be positionally set apart in Christ Jesus. 